Some of the other benefits that I really like about self-storage are the month-to-month rents, which allows you as an investor the flexibility to be dynamic and move with the market. So as we saw in 2020, actually a lot of people were moving from one state to another or moving from one house to another. The demand for self-storage rose quite a bit. Welcome to School of Success, the podcast that will help you reach your goals and become the success story you've always dreamed of. Join us on our journey as we explore the strategies, tools, and tactics needed to build health, wealth, and personal development. Together, we'll uncover the secrets to living life to its fullest with host Brandon Hicks. So let's get started and make your dreams come true. Welcome back to another episode of School of Success. Today, I'm gonna go through self-storage as an asset class, why you might wanna invest in it, and exactly how it works. So what exactly is a self-storage facility? You've probably driven by them before. You might've seen U-Haul, life storage, public storage, extra space. Those are a lot of the big self-storage players, but there's a lot of mom and pop owners as well with less signage, smaller facilities, which are actually the facilities that I'm interested in. So what does self-storage offer and why is it such a successful business? Self-storage offers a place for regular people like you or me or businesses to store their belongings in a safe and secure environment. Generally, this is behind a fenced or gated facility and then you have your stuff stored in a unit that is locked as well. And then you've got lighting and security to protect your belongings. In addition to that, you also can get different types of units like not climate controlled or climate controlled. Let's say if you are a landscaper and you wanted to store your lawnmowers or other equipment there, the climate control, sometimes humidity control can allow for the longevity of your equipment. Another reason people use self-storage is not just to store their belongings for the long term, but it could be because they're either upgrading or downgrading in their home. So let's say they're living in an apartment building and they want to move into a house and there's a month or two month period where they're going to be moving their stuff out and then moving it in and they don't have a place to store their stuff. Storage offers a place for that person to store their stuff. And that's actually a very large percentage of the customer base that uses self-storage. It's generally, I believe, in like the 30 to 40% of customers of self-storage are people moving from one home to another, from an apartment to another home, or moving from one state to another, and they need to put their stuff there. So that's a lot of the reasons why someone might use self-storage. Why would you want to invest in self-storage? Well, self-storage is very similar to multifamily, which is an asset class that a lot of people are more familiar with with. Some of the nice things about multifamily is the scale. You have sometimes 100, 200 unit apartment buildings. So if you raise the rents $10, that's $10 across all 200 units. So you do the quick math on that. That's $10 times 200 is $2,000 a month. 12 months is $24,000. Realistically, you're not just raising rents $10. It might be $50 or $100. And you can see how that scales quite quickly. Another reason is the protection of your cash flow. Let's say you have a single family home. If you have one renter, one tenant, as soon as they leave, your cash flow goes from 100% to 0% or your occupancy is going from 100% to 0%. All of a sudden you've lost all that cash flow. Whereas the more doors you have, the more units you have, the more protected you are. Let's say you had a hundred unit facility, you could lose 10 people and still have 90 people paying. Or if you go from 90 to 80, you still have people paying. And at some point you will break even where now below that you're no longer making money, but it takes a lot longer to get to that point. And so you're much better protected. So a lot of those 
benefits that you get in multifamily, you get in self-storage as well. Some of the other benefits that I really like about self-storage are the month-to-month rents, which allows you as an investor, the flexibility to be dynamic and move with the market. So as we saw in 2020, actually a lot of people were moving from one state to another or moving from one house to another. The demand for self-storage rose quite a bit. And as the demand increased, the occupancies increased and now there's fewer units available and just basic supply and demand. The less supply you have available or the more demand, the more you can charge for those units. And because you have month to month rents, you can make those changes very, very quickly. Actually, a lot of operators will raise rents typically twice a year, whereas in the multifamily space, you are generally doing 12 month leases. So you can really only raise rates once that lease comes due at the end of those 12 months. So in self-storage, it offers you the ability to be a lot more flexible and nimble. The other nice thing about self-storage is just that the customer base is quite wide ranging. Like I mentioned, you've got customers that are moving from one location to another and they need self-storage. We have another customer base that just has excess stuff that they don't want to get rid of. And the nature of storage is that it's a relatively sticky business. What do I mean by sticky? You put yourself in that situation. We've all moved from an apartment to a house or whatever. You spend a couple days a week packing up your whole house, get it into a U-Haul or to a moving truck, and then you put it into a unit. The last thing you really want to do is to then go load that all back up and then go move it into the next place. So what ends up happening is, especially if it's excess stuff, you end up just leaving it there. One, it becomes out of sight, out of mind. It's like how you store stuff in your basement and you kind of forget about it. And then five years later, you forget that you had that thing. That happens a lot in self-storage. And so one, just is kind of out of sight, out of mind. But two, it's sticky because once you're there, you don't want to leave. And so one strategy that a lot of the big REITs and the big players in self-storage use is they'll actually slash rates for their first month and then they'll do their lease-up mode or their lease-up strategy will be to raise rates very aggressively, very quickly, knowing that people probably won't leave. Let's say that they're charging 50 bucks for that first month, but they know that they're going to bump rents to 100 and double them within, let's say, three months or four months. Well, relatively speaking, just a $50 a month raise is not that expensive. And if you think about it from the hassle that the customer is going to experience by saying, screw this, I'm going to leave, but then think, well, now I've got to go rent a U-Haul, which probably costs 50 bucks at least on its own. And I've got to get my friends and I got to spend a whole day packing up my stuff and moving it somewhere else. And where am I going to move it to? Probably to another facility down the street. And what are they charging? Probably not that different, especially if you're bumping up to market rates. So now they're going to go through this whole hassle, spending a whole week bringing friends. They got to buy them food and all of this for their troubles. Are you really going to do that? Most people are not going to do that. And so that means that it's really sticky where I can raise rates as an investor and you're not going to get that much turnover. Of course, every once in a while, someone will turn over, but I mean, that's how it goes. And then another big tenant base or customer base is businesses, local businesses. A property that I'm a partner in when we toured the facility, the owner was telling us that about 20% of his customer base were actually local businesses that had been customers for years. And as a business, they'd pay on time and it was a great revenue source for them. And it was also relatively stable, which was nice. So between people who are moving from one house to another or moving out of state, you've got people who just have excess stuff that they need to store and you've got businesses, you've got this relatively wide range of different customer needs. And so that gives you this great customer profile. Another thing that self-storage offers is you've got this relatively large plot of land. You've got all these different ways 
ways that you can store people's stuff. So you've got non-climate controlled units, which means that there's no heating, there's no air conditioning. The temperature is going to fluctuate with whatever is going on outside. You should be thinking about if I'm in Maine, where it's going to be very cold in the winter, is that okay? Is that what customers are expecting? Or are they expecting their units to actually be heated so that the temperature kind of stays at a nice 70 degrees throughout the year? So that's one unit type. Another unit type is climate controlled. And climate controlled is exactly what it sounds like. Usually you've got HVAC systems that are providing you with temperature control in the certain units. Now that's going to cost more on the expenses and the utilities, but it's also going to allow you to charge a premium. And so that's something that you want to be paying attention to is the unit mix at that facility and what is expected or what is more common in the market. There might be a really high demand or really high supply of not climate controlled or climate controlled. And that's something to be mindful of. The last major unit type is really not a unit, it's actually parking. So you'll see a lot of facilities have outdoor parking, which would be for boats, RVs, trucks, trailers. That's another great revenue source. If someone's got extra cars or an RV, boats, there's a facility that's near me here in Massachusetts where the neighboring town does not allow any boats or RVs to be parked in the driveway. And so because of that local town ordinance, the facility right there is actually 100% full almost all year round with boats, RVs, trailers, because the town does not allow that. So it's a great little insider piece of information that can allow you to be more successful in a market if you know that the local town is not allowing certain things to be stored on your property because they don't want you know it to be an eyesore for the area. You could capitalize that as being the self-storage owner. So that's a little bit about the self-storage facility. And now I want to go into the market and how you might consider a market and what things you want to be looking out for. Supply and demand is huge for self-storage. You want to be looking at what the competition is in that market. You want to be looking to see if there's any of those major players that we talked about. Those are the REITs, extra space, life storage, public storage. Doesn't mean that that's necessarily a market that you should stay away from, but it's something to be mindful of because they've got a lot of money. They can afford to slash rates if they need to. They've probably got more money in the reserves and are able to weather storms maybe better than the smaller investors. And so that's something to just be mindful of because if your competition has deeper pockets and is able to do things that you're not able to, it could potentially push you out of business. A lot of those companies will do expansions or develop in those markets. And once you add a lot of supply to the market, whoever that investor is, they're going to want to fill up those units as quickly as possible. And one way they can do that is by dropping rates really low. So they're either going to try to encourage new customers who would have possibly went to your facility. They're going to try to get them to go to theirs, or they're going to try to steal your current customers by offering them promotions. And so now that might force you to get into this bidding war of lowering your rates so that you stay competitive. But as you lower rates, your revenue is going to drop. And can you manage that for a period of time? So that is definitely something you want to be looking out for as you look at a market to see how heavily filled it is with the big players. There's a lot of other factors that will go into determining whether or not people need to store their stuff and what types of units they're going to need. Another important factor is income. So with storage, if one of your primary renting profiles or customer profiles is people who have excess stuff, 
generally only going to have excess stuff or cars or RVs to store if you've got disposable income. And so one thing you want to be looking at is the median household income in your local market. And what I like to do is compare it to the MSA. So I want to be seeing that the market that I'm looking at for specifically around that facility, I want to make sure that the potential customer base that's going to come to me has enough income to support having extra stuff. And I've heard in the past, some people will just throw out a number like 45000 or $50,000 median household income. But the reality is, is that that changes quite a bit depending on where you live in the country. You know, up here in the Northeast, $45,000 median household income would be relatively low. But in other parts of the country, that might be really high. And so they actually have disposable income to go buy extra things that they need to store. So it's something you want to be paying attention to. And another thing is going to be just the population and the population growth. This is kind of consistent across a lot of asset classes. You really don't want to see population steadily declining. If you do, that would be a red flag to say, okay, why are people leaving this area? Are they going to continue to leave? And as they leave, that means my potential customer base is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. If I want to hold this facility for 10 years, what's the population going to be like? Am I going to continue to lose customers and struggle to fill? And then my revenue is going to take a hit. My value is going to take a hit. It's something that you generally want to stay away from. And that's the case in multifamily, self-storage, and I'm sure a number of other asset classes. So if you were looking to get started, I would recommend just diving in and getting yourself educated. A great resource is AJ Osborne's self-storage income podcast. And he also has a book as well. I believe it's called Growing Wealth and Self-Storage. So those are two great resources. And then once you're starting to get some competence and confidence within self-storage, you could start thinking about what value do you want to add or bring to an investor? And to start that, I think that's generally going to either be finding deals or finding capital, both of which are going to be needed for joint venture deals or syndications. Do you be going direct to seller or building broker relationships, telling them what type of property, what's your criteria, what you're looking for. Or you could be finding capital, talking to potential investors, letting them know what types of returns you think you can get. The way you're going to really start to understand that though is aligning yourself with other more experienced investors and talking to them and saying, hey, what type of deals are you looking for? Or what types of returns are you getting on your deals? And that'll tell you whether if you want to go look for deals, what types of deals that you should look for. You can go to the brokers and say, here's my criteria. This is exactly what I'm looking for. You can then learn to analyze and bring those deals to a sponsor or to your more experienced investors. Or if you're thinking that you might want to go the capital raising route, now that you know what your investor's criteria is and the returns that they typically get, you can take that and go build a network of potential investors, letting them know, hey, these are the types of deals that we invest in. We typically hold for five years or we'll refinance in three years. Then we hold for 10 years. These are the types of returns we're getting. Here's when we would typically be able to get you back your capital. If that works for you, I could send you an investment summary package so that the next time this comes around, I can be quick to share it with you or I can get you on my investor list so that you can be aware of all the deals that are coming my way. So that's how I would recommend getting started. Hey, I appreciate you listening to another episode of School of Success. I'm committed to helping others reach their full potential. So if you found value, please leave a five-star rating and review. With that, we can reach more people and help make their dreams come true.